Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to a Christmas edition of Arts Roundup, where we'll hobnob with the latest royal portrait artists, find out how to pack a sexy and political punch with a striking kimono and then some, and drop in on art students discovering their talents and realising a creative dream. In this edition, award-winning royal portrait artist Dan Llewellyn Hall visits Cambridge and talks on his latest work. Cambridge School of Visual and Performing Arts opens new studios in King Street and gives 105 a taster of its cutting-edge drama art and design courses. Freelance painter and teacher Deanna Tyson talks on her current exhibition of kimono artworks which carry multi-layered and thought-provoking socio-economic themes. And Cambridge artist Chloe Leeper previews her January show and invites people to watch her work in Norfolk Street. It's not often you meet a rising star on the national contemporary art scene, but anything can happen when you visit the house of Cambridge journalist and author Anne Garvey. A spontaneous private view of 37 paintings drew in an eager audience to see the highly colourful and much-talked-about work of Dan Llewellyn Hall, a 33-year-old painter from Cardiff who was recently commissioned to do a striking portrait of the Queen and was Young Artist of the Year in 2003. He's loosely regarded as part of a visionary lineage of painters dating back to the dreams of the Romantics and has a rare talent for capturing the atmosphere of bright imagined places based on emotional memories of uplifting settings. Dan talked about his work, which includes landscapes inspired by experiences in Crete, France and the Canary Islands, and abstracts as well as portraiture. His portraits have a way of capturing the subject's spirit in a semi-caricature which emanates from the true rendition of the subject's eyes and he was much acclaimed for his work of World War II veteran Harry Patch which won him the BT Portrait Award. The portrait Harry Patch was something actually I pursued because I, I was very keen, I, I'd read a book actually at the point in time, yeah. The Last 20 Veterans, The First World War and um, I sort of made the approach myself and, uh, and after a couple of years of the, of the process I finally you know, got to meet Harry Patch. Um, mm. That was a tremendously privileged position to do, to make it. And with, with your portraits, I mean, you seem to um, sort of hover between um, uh, basically trying to capture um, an established um, adult presence within the figure, but um, also um, elements of a caricature um, in it as well, and particularly focusing on the eyes. What's the secret to one of your portraits? How did they come about? Well, I like to build in the, the whole notion of you know humour and things. I think people shy away from humour when it comes to portraits, and particularly of big big subject matters like you know the First World War veterans, uh, people like and people like the Queen and so forth. And people, you know, that people are overwhelmed by that as a subject matter. But for me, I, I like to sort of get really down to the, the nugget of the, of the um, you know the sense of humour and the fun which some of these people have. Um, now, I'm told you, I mean, you, you obviously did this um, portrait of the Queen, which has been much talked about. Um, you had her for something like an hour or so. Was that enough time to actually? get to know the Queen a little bit and what is she like at close quarters when you're doing a project like that? Yeah, I think it was enough time for me because um, she, she's somebody who, who you know, disarms you and makes you feel very much at ease very quickly and, and very conversable and um, 
you know, very con- you know, great, great conversationist. But so for me, it was very easy to, to do that portrait because, um, you know, I'd already set out with the idea of what I was going to do for it. Um, which is great fun, actually. Well, why do you think they picked you to do that one? Well, because actually it was, it was really a bit of a lineage through the portraits I'd done previously, so it was to do with the Harry Patch portrait that the, the Queen had um, acquired two of my drawings, the studies for the Harry Patch, and it happened that the Welsh Rugby Union also were looking for someone to commission for, for the portrait, and they'd owned a, owned a portrait of me as well, so it was, it was a bit of serendipity in that sense. Really. Um, you, you've been doing recent work, obviously we're looking at a, a selection of your paintings here at um, Anne Garvey's house in Cambridge. Um, You've been doing work which is based on some of your travels in, in Greece, France um, and um, the Canary Islands. Um, tell me a bit about that. How did this recent work come about? I was very interested in the idea of the resort. And for the British people, we're all very familiar with resorts as we go on holiday. But they're normally culturally bankrupt places, places which we don't really have any sense of engagement with the history of a place. So for me, I wanted to get... I, I was searching out places which had this, this sort of sense of escapism, really. Um, and I tried to unveil that. Yeah, I mean, I very much got that sense that um, hedonism, escapism and mm. uplifting moments are very much what's behind your um, art. Um, is that really important for you? Because you're, you're both a sort of semi-visionary and, and, and also a romantic figure in some senses in terms of the way that you paint, aren't mm. you? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say that for me, because you feel as though you're at the root of it, particularly when you go to these resorts, for me, they appeal to me enormously because they're, they're uncharted territories. And for an artist, that's exactly what you want. You want to reveal imagery and create and add, add, add some, add, you know, give something new, fresh to the, to the table. Really. Now, now you, you received that in a kind of, um, uh, in a kind of an emotional way, but you, you actually um, put a lot of very exacting work into those landscapes, don't you? How long does it take to produce a piece like? like I would say, I should imagine that on average. I mean, I sit in front of the things. I like to immerse myself in the subject, so I never work from phot- uh, photographs yeah. or anything second source. I would say each picture, on average, I should think, would take me probably, you know, over the course of two or three days whilst I'm there on the, on the subject, and I don't really do much more than that, in fact. What, what has to be there for you to say, actually, that work is finished? Well, it's just connecting with the, the imagery, with, with the feeling. So as mm. soon as you start feeling what, what you felt when you're originally there and what you're looking at, and you get back to that feeling, the originality of it, then you feel as though you've got a complete picture, really. Sort of, sort of a, a, a very modern work. Um, um, how did you um, become associated with Anne Garvey? How, how, where does that link come in? How did you end up being... So I was here, actually, for an engagement party of a good friend of mine, a, a writer, Owen Shears, and, um, and we, met, we met on this one occasion, and Anne very, you know, very kindly suggested doing it, and I liked the room very much, and I'd never not really been to Cambridge, and I thought it was um, but an adventure, really. You've been working on film sets and film projects as well, haven't you, recently? Yeah, well, I've been very fortunate to be invited to go to different sort of environments like that, you know, to follow on, follow a, a, a film crew, and I, and I get, but I like to like to engage with the actual subject matter and the people who are there, rather than the film itself. So it's really about the whole dialogue of how films are made, which is something we don't we really get to see. Um, what, what, who are your um, main influences? Who do you draw upon, both past and, and presently at the moment? There's an endless list, but I suppose that the people who always stay at the top for me um, are the sea artists, really, because I mean they've got the, they've got enough time elapsed to so you can get a better perspective on them. But people like. Soutine is someone I always return to, an expressionist painter. Uh, Matisse, of course, is someone I've always got a great, great sort of empathy with. I believe that his sort of uh, vision and his approach was exacting to what mine is. Hmm. Um, so I'd say they're two very fundamental. But they're, they're, I, could, I could reel off many, many names, and in fact, it's, it's, it's very, very hard to do because every painting's got a different touch of somebody else. And I'm, I'm here, obviously, we're at a, a private view, but when is your next uh, major exhibition coming up? Well, I'm now, next year, I'm just devoting the whole year, really, to working on a, the centenary exhibition to um, 
um, commemorate the centenary of uh, um, Dylan Thomas, his 100th anniversary. So it's going to be a series of exhibitions in London and in Wales, and I'm going to be responding to his, um, his short stories, in fact. I've chosen his prose work. Um, so we have a programme of things to do with that. So. Very exciting work, Dan Reninhall. Mm. Thank you very much indeed. Dan includes all kinds of unlikely things in his abstract paintings that aren't easy to spot. And he makes jokes alluding to other painters such as Van Gogh. And includes modern miracles like wind turbines marking the current era. Here, some buffs educated me on the contents of a complex abstract that you really need to study closely. You're going to say there's something extraordinary about this painting. Well, there is, because there's, um, it's, I'd say, a fairly abstract piece of work, but there's one clear figurative element within it. It's just a question of finding it. Well, there are two. So, two, well, two, one, if you regard the dog. One if you, one if you use your imagination, and the other, is, the other one is purely um, illustrative. And in whimsical. Is it the dog's head? Not the dog's head, no. no Nor the horse's head, whatever you might think. Whatever it, it might be, but to, no. the, to the right of the painting, there's the something right. else. Third of the way down. It's a elongated grey shape, or possibly taking off. It's entirely whimsical. Yeah. Oh, no, no, not entirely whimsical. On the right. Oh, it's a jet, obviously. Yes, yeah. but what jet is it? But what jet is it? It's a, it's a concord. Yeah, it is, and it is. But it doesn't have a drooping nose. But Dan tells me he was in, he actually painted this when he was working at Harrow, which is where I work. And he was in, there's a lovely sort of copse on the site of the school and a lovely lake and things. And he was walking there and he, he saw that. That which was the last, it was the last time the Concorde flew, and we're right underneath the flight path, so he managed to see it, and he worked it into this otherwise entirely fantastical painting.
Wanting to set the world on fire at a young age seems to be every teenager's dream these days, and choosing the right training at 16 plus can be vital, especially if you set your heart on acting, performing arts, music or art and design. Converting raw energy and talent in ambitious and creative youngsters into a fighting chance to win a place at a top UK college or firm is a service now highly sought after. I've been hearing about the range of courses offered at the Cambridge School of Visual and Performing Arts as it moves into a new and impressive premises in King Street, noticeably displaying the latest chic clothing designs and artworks in the shopfront besides Darry's Restaurant. Established in 1985, the college originally only ran courses in Art and Design Foundation, but has now broadened its portfolio to include a BA in Graphics, Illustration and Design and Performing Arts Foundations as demand rockets. Active prestigious partnerships with RADA, Kingston University and the University of Arts London are attracting students with the promise of intensive teaching and top-notch connections. Drum students can be strange creatures to encounter, as I found out in their spacious new studios. No shortage of youthful exuberance here with a course which students really felt was furnishing them with the right acting, singing and dance skills and masterclasses linked to RADA. Here's Acting Foundation student Tanwin Smith-Meek. This um, college um, has some pretty prestigious connections, doesn't it? Yeah, it it does. It was actually um, RADA's original foundation course. I think it's the oldest one out of all the drama school foundation courses and it's been going for about 10 years. Um, RADA established their own foundation afterwards for the... um, yeah, the union has been going for quite a while. Does, does that enable you to actually go to RADA to some of their workshops and, and even have lectures possibly by some of the famous names there? Yeah, well, we, have, we haven't had um, lectures yet, but we have been, well, like uh, in our first week we went and had um, talks with Nona Shepherd, who's one of the main directors there, and she also makes the final decisions in Illini auditions. We've mm-hmm. also been to see a couple of plays, and we have uh, we have Brian Sterner who come in, who um, used mm-hmm. to be a very successful actor, and he's on the RADA board. Mm-hmm. And we also had, um, yeah, and I think we have Nona Shepard coming in the future as well. So there is quite a lot of. Um, mm. Is that where you personally are heading for, um, Radha? If you, you you pass out of here with your foundation course, well, that would be that would be the dream, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, any any of the top drama schools would be, you know, ideal. But Radha, I suppose, would be the dream. That's the one that everyone 
Hmm. Uh, what attracted you to this particular college um, in the first place? I actually found out about it because a friend of mine who's also from Norwich did the course, and she's, she is at RADA now, hmm. and she's in her second year, hmm. and she recommended it to me and said that you know, she attributed her success to doing this course, so that's uh, what the main thing that attracted me to it. Um, and the course itself, is it pretty dynamic? What do you learn how to do? Presumably you're doing singing, dancing and acting. Yeah, we it? do pretty much everything you could want, to, want from a foundation course. Obviously hmm. we have acting classes, we have movement classes, we do dancing, singing. And it's all about what we really learn is that all means of art are kind of about expressing yourself. So whether it's singing, whether it's dance, whether it's acting, it's all about kind of expressing yourself through that medium. And what have been the high points of the course so far? How many people are in your group? Oh, uh, well, we have two groups of, um, well, there's one group of nine, one group of ten, and four musical theatre students. I think the highlights have been, you know, the, the things we've been working towards, such as the RADA Shakespeare certificate, mm-hmm. which is where they have um, an examiner from RADA come in and we had to do a duologue. I did the monologue exam as well. So we basically got to, we had to perform a monologue and a sonnet and a scene and then get a sight reading as well. And then we haven't had the results in yet, but they'll be sent in probably, I think, next month. Well, the Christmas show was one of the big highlights yeah. where we, we basically, it was basically an accumulation of everything we've learned so far this term. So we did, yeah, obviously acting, singing and dancing. And what was great about that is that there were things like dance, which I struggled with quite a lot to begin with. And it was something that I kind of wasn't sure if I could do. But now and then I ended up doing the dance ensemble in the show and singing in front of people as well. And these are both things that would have made me nervous before. Mm-hmm. But it was great to just be able to actually, as I said, you know, express myself through other, media, through other means other than acting. Uh, well, which areas do you think you've really improved on? I think my movement. I used to be, because um, I did karate for a lot of years before mm. I came here, and I think that made me, I, I, was, I had quite a stiff, because it had been uh, quite a stiff body, because it was drilled into me. And the movement and dance classes really helped me to kind of become more in tune with my body. So it wasn't just about acting through my voice, but to actually free myself up physically. I think that's one of the main areas improved, and also just general confidence and focus. Francesca Oldham says the expansion of the school into King Street enables them to provide state-of-the-art new facilities. So um, we've just take, uh, we've just got some new facilities at mm. King Street. Um, we were growing, and the demand is ever growing, so we needed a bit more space. And it's actually quite interesting how we came across um, that piece of property. We one of our tutors um, is a practicing artist, and he's actually um, in residence at Christ College upstairs in the studios and he obviously let us know about that space and we held a catwalk um, fashion show there last summer and thought really exciting definitely a really interesting space for us so um, and we actually got told about the space at, um, at King Street by Izam Kubaj who's one of our um, who's worked with us in the college for 20 years but he's actually um, quite a famous local artist um, a practicing artist. He was. Um, he was actually. His uh, work was given as a gift to Prince William and um, Kate when they came to Cambridge. So, um, yeah. So he let us know about this space because he's um, Christ College in residence artist upstairs. So yeah, we moved there and it's really interesting space for us. As um, you know, we saw so much potential there. So um, th- there's a large um, gl- of sphere hanging um, in the window, which is made of entirely of cloth butterflies um, of all kinds of different colours. Um, whose was that one wonderful piece of artwork? I believe uh, I'm not entirely sure whose that is, but within the window or at the moment, we have a tradition where we display staff work um, during the two-week Christmas break, um, just purely because it's um, it's a great way to show students that all our tutors are practicing artists, and you know they're interested in what their teachers are, are doing. So it's a sort of tradition that we do this every year. People are very interested in what we're doing here because. Um, 
we're based on more of a sort of a different model to what modern institution art institutions are based on. We're very into sort of the old older ways of a practicing art school. We are just dedicated to art and design. There's mm. no other um, in terms of BAs and things, there's no other BAs here. Mm. It's very much an art and design school and all our teachers, and it's very hands-on, lots of teacher contact time, very personalised projects where students are doing very individual things. Mm. There's no group task. I mean, our approach to learning is it's got to be unique and it's got mm. to be personalised. It's all about one-on-one -on -one time with the teacher. There is constantly teachers here for students to access and they're taught 40 hours a week, mm. every week. Mm -hmm. So... It's, you know, it's quite in that way a different model to mm. a lot of modern mm. art institutions. It's, it's like I say, it's really based on this, mm. you know, learn from your teacher, real individual guidance. Um, so that in itself is very interesting. And on top of that, we, you know, we provide, like I say, um, a Mac and workspace for every graphics and um, illustration student, a, a mannequin and workspace and unlimited amounts of calico mm. for all our fashion design students. And, you know, of course, there's always um, study skill support for things like essays. Mm. We have a whole department dedicated to that. So yeah. all the facilities that students need to get those top marks to really prepare them. Kenneth Gardner is studying a BA in graphic design and illustration and says the courses are intensive and encourage individual innovation. So far, it's been great. Like, I would say the biggest difference is things want for us, like, since the school is a lot smaller, and one thing that has definitely been a benefit is to them, I have more one-on-one -on -one time with my teachers, which is really great because then that way I have more kind of like hands, more hands-on with my work as well. And of course, I've, you're more encouraged to try different things and experiment, which I think really has helped me out in my work. Can, can you tell me about your particular project? What, what does it involve? Currently, right now, we're just doing like a small animation which we have to finish from when we come back from Christmas. And I've never did animation before, but it's been really fun because I enjoy learning about new different mediums and stuff and anything. And even though if I may never touch animation again, I, it's still really good to just kind of learn something different because you can always apply stuff like that to your other work as well. What are your ambitions when you finish the course? What are you hoping to go on and do? That, that's the tricky one because mm. I think it happens for a good bit of students when you come out here. You sure. always wanted to do with like one field. Like I wanted to head in like graphic, I mean not graphic designer, concept art and stuff and video games and everything. But then when I came out here, it's like, I'm, you know, we've been meeting people coming from different publishers and stuff, whatever. And I'm like, oh, I can get into publishing now. I can do children's books or you can even self-publish now thanks to like stuff like the internet and Kickstarter. So I honestly don't know at this point because there's just so many options that's just kind of been brought to light. But if anything, I'll probably try and head into more publishing because I really want people to kind of view and enjoy my work, if anything else. The fashion sector's recent success stories have been a shot in the arm. At our fashion design, um, on our fashion, BA fashion design, the catwalk show, uh, a, we actually had a scout come and they saw some work, um, so a student's work, and offered them on the spot a place on their MA um, <laughs> at London College of Fashion in menswear, which is, you know, really highly sought after place. So, you know, there's some really exciting things that happen like that. I mean, we have students on our graphics and illustrations course who did internships at Saatchi and Saatchi and now working in, um, you know, a big advertising company in New York. We've got some really exciting stuff. Um, and, you know, we've got lots of visiting speakers and practicing artists coming mm. to talk because people are interested in what's happening here. It's, it's different. It's a bit unusual and mm. people are, you mm. know, mm. excited. 
Here's Alexis Solston, a third-year fashion design student, busily working on an end-of-course collection. I notice there's lots of wonderful things involving fashion um, going on around this building. Yes. Um, there, there's fashion photography, um, making clothing and things like that. What do you do yourself? Uh, I make... We're part of the department. I'm in the department of where we essentially construct garments. Mm-hmm. And that starts off... I mean, can you tell me a bit how project works? You start off basically with a drawing, don't you? Essentially, well, here with the school, they want you to first learn about the development of, and what's going on around the world in a fashion way mm. and then to start developing and then kind of come up with your own idea mm. using the inspiration that you have and then through that you, you start designing and then from the design you start making. Uh, and what resources do you have at your disposal here for that? Actually time? we're lucky in that respect we have mm. we have a lot and um, must say that it's you know being here studying in Cambridge uh, essentially what is a private college with the affiliation of Kingston mm. it's we're lucky. Can, can you tell me about um, your particular project? What does it involve and what was the outcome? Um, well, at the moment, as I'm in my third year, we have to make a collection. So it's mm. essentially for me, I'm using my background as in my life story, essentially, and the countries which I've lived in and incorporating that with sport. So British tailoring and the colours of South America. So these are places which I've lived in. And I want to kind of bring them together in a kind of collaboration. And where do you want to take um, your your skills as well when you finish the course? Well, that was an interesting. It's only some recent kind of kind of spark of idea, which is to essentially I'd like to see if I can get into Savile Row and do bespoke tailoring there. Yeah, and that's yeah. where I'd like to continue my work because it's always been the tailoring. Yeah. And what about catwalk shows? Do you do that? Yeah, we first year, second year, you, and even third year as well, which is we're going to present in London during London Fashion Week. Yeah. So that would be an opportunity for us and to essentially exhibit our work mm. to the greater public. And has this been a very exciting um, and expensive course for you to do? It has been. Mm. It's mm. it's one of the most expensive courses to do. Mm. But it is, I think, I'm lucky to be able to do it as well. Um, and I think, you know, with the opportunity given... It's a great opportunity to take. Here, one thing that we're also very lucky with is the contact time that we have with our tutors. We're essentially something which is Jane, the head of department, has thought through and thought is the best way of actually being taught is to be here, you know, every day for the period of the day, essentially, to learn. And so we're very lucky with that. And being a small group, and this is why, for me, it was a huge attraction to come here because of it's very small groups which means you can you know you can get a lot of contact time it helps a lot and we get taught how to make the garments as well so we learn from the basic sewing throughout the years you know and that's how we do you know at the end for us we have to present as third years now in january at the end of january we have to present twiles essentially which is in calico a whole collection and that we have to assemble well, high hopes are one thing, but results are everything. And former drama students are now hitting the stage in the West End and are due to perform later this year in Cambridge. We've got two students, Jonathan Sayer and Charlie Russell, who went on to Lambda. And they've actually written um, and are performing their own play, The Play That Goes Wrong. Um, and it's in the West End at the moment and it's up for a Best Comedy Award. And I'm pleased to say that's actually coming to the Cambridge Arts Theatre in May. Um, so that's a really exciting uh, opportunity. And, um, you know, we've had a, a local uh, boy called Tom Bailey who actually, um, he, he was a local boy from Hills Road and he got a place at Bristol Old Vic and, you know, 3,000 people apply there every year and only 16 get selected. Mm-hmm. So it's a really prestigious school. Um, 
Yeah, so we, we've got some real success stories from yeah. drama mm-hmm. as well. Francesca Oldham, yeah. um, what a fantastic platform for a career in the arts. Um, a fabulous college. Thank you very much indeed for showing me around. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. Thank you. 
Slipping into a silk-lined kimono in a relaxing personal space can be a highly appetising idea and not to mention a bit sexy too. Tempting people towards the more pleasant side of humanity isn't hard, but getting people to look and engage with the darker side of the truth about humanity and the corruption and suffering around us is often a difficult nut to crack. I've been talking to an artist who's currently exhibiting over a 100 thought-provoking works on socio-political themes in the spacious new Alison Richards building in West Road. Freelance painter, textile artist and teacher Deanna Tyson's banners and silk-lined kimonos pack plenty of political punch in a dazzling array of brightly coloured works, many of which you could wear just like your principles over a mortal and vulnerable body. Deanna is a fellow of the Royal College of Arts and works with textiles because they're a truly worldwide and universal street and carnival form that lend themselves as dynamic canvases for portraying conflicts and injustice issues in every part of the globe. We're in the choral stairwell of the um, Alison Richards building, a wonderful new Cambridge University building. Loads of loads of exhibition space and you've used a, a large amount of it. How many I pieces have. have you got on display here hanging uh, from the balconies and from the walls? And yeah, the I've got well over 100 pieces and they span a period of time but what's been fabulous for me is I because I work on a, uh, um, a kind of political theme and so socio-political themes I've been able to put work in here that's related to the different areas being taught so here there's politics South African South American studies sorry Latin American studies South Asian studies and African studies and I've tried to relate work to each of those areas on each floor, yeah. Um, when did you first um, fall in love with kimonos? Was that a, a, an exotic trip abroad that brought those into your life? No. <laughs> um, I've always loved political cartoons and I've always loved Japanese line woodblock prints. There's a, a beautiful movement of line there that I've always responded to. And it wasn't until I was living in the Netherlands and I came back to England, read an article in a newspaper and it related to uh, a little park in the middle of Tokyo which was going to be dug up because a recreation centre was going to be built and when they dug the recreation centre they realised that underneath that there was a, it was the site of um, a concentration camp that had carried out hideous medical uh, procedures and to me, that just kind of clicked. Actually, that's what I felt. I mean, it sounds awful, but that's what I felt about a lot of societies, particularly J Japan, that there are two extremes mm. operating there. And the art specifically showed that to me. You have beauty and you have a dark side. Um, they, they do reflect, don't they, kimonos, relaxation, um, personal space, and obviously also um, they're, they're sexy as well, aren't they? 
Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's it's kind of like wearing wearing everything that you think and believe in. Is, is that it? it, it uh, yes, yeah. and I have kimonos that aren't here, which are much more sexy. Yeah. But it, it it is to do it is to do with you know you wearing the world. It, you, you, it's a part of you and a part of your surroundings. It's not an isolated piece of work on the wall. And they're absolutely beautiful. And the banners, um, where did they originate from? Oh, that's that was because I absolutely. Ha I've always wanted to do a piece of work on Rainbow Nation, the idea of the Rainbow Nation. And I love wax cloths because they're over the top, because they're incredibly bright. So I've collected fabrics from Ghana and Senegal and people have given me fabrics from Congo and I selected them. They're actually quite intricate to make, but they're selected on the basis of colours. Mm -hmm. Well, red, orange, yellow, everything like that. But also characters that I put to that because I find African society incredibly vibrant and creative. So I've put the positive figures from Africa on each banner. Mm -hmm. So you have dance, sport, music, creativity in terms of fashion and art and all of those kind of things. There are a couple of negatives there. I have got the military on there mm. and corrupt uh, politicians, but in general, very positive. And industry is women. This kimono is called the Judas tree. Yeah. I have Greek friends and the state of Greek emotionally as well mm. as um, econo economically at the moment mm. is dreadful. And when I last went to Greece, it was um, in, oh, before I did this kimono, I've actually been since, the Judas trees, which are very, very beautiful trees, were in blossom all over. I also made a visit to the uh, Oracle at Delphi and I suddenly thought, actually, there's um, a, a kind of a, a comparison to be made between what's happening in Greece, being forced to choose between going independent and staying part of the um, EU, yeah, yeah. and the fact that if you went to the, uh, the Oracle at Delphi, you could choose a path, but you weren't actually ever given any help. And I mean, I know that sounds an odd comparison, but for me, it was very real. And the, if you speak to Greeks, they will see the Olympic Games as one of the starts of their downfall. And also, they are very upset by the German attitude towards Greece because a lot of the infrastructure, wonderful though it is, is provided by Germany. And Germany knew the state of Greek economy. They knew the level of money that they had before they started lending them all of this money. And for me, it's a bit like the arms race. Uh, if you provide somebody with arms, you can't blame them entirely for using them. You're responsible. So for me, the EU and particularly Germany are responsible for what's happened there. Um, it's a beautifully um, large, bright um, kimono with um, some of those Greek blues and whites that yes. you, you, you always associate with um, uh, Greece. But you've also got nooses, um, as if from a gallows, going down the side of them. What do those represent exactly? Yeah, well, it's a two-layered kimono, so the yeah. top layer is a Judas tree itself. Yeah. But it's, the nooses represent everything that the Greeks feel that they have lost. Yeah. And I asked Greek friends to write, and they wrote very eloquently. Yeah. So they've lost optimism, they've lost uh, faith in the future, they've lost education, they've lost, the, they, they, de they love, Greeks love being hospitable and they can't afford to do that. They've lost the family unity, they've lost so many things. Mm. 
and a lot of them are committing suicide. So it was that idea of, you know, and also there's a reference to the Judas tree mm. being called a Judas tree because Judas was supposed to have committed mm. suicide mm. on it. So mm. the, I just link all of those things together. So it's despair in a very bright and wonderful place. It <laughs> is totally, it's despair in a beautiful place, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the underlayer with all of the um, mm. graffiti, okay. that layer is to do with um, the Greek cry has always been education, um, uh, bread and I've forgotten the third um, and democracy that, that you know those are the three things they'll always cry out for and that's what they feel that they're losing and uh, yes and so it was lovely working with Greek people who gave me their information so written on the inside here is the letter that Tatika um, wrote to me about all of the losses and how people felt and how they can't be hospitable anymore. And this is a Greek family flag, and this is a flag from uh, one of the protests. So I collect things together, people give me them, which is brilliant. OK, we've got um, two wonderful exhibits here on the ground floor, one in a glass case, which looks at first glance um, like a bag, but it's, it has many things on it, like um, uh, bullet cartridges and things like that. And then on the wall behind, we have a piece called Flight from Gaber. Um, where did those two come from? Uh, they came from the conflict in the Congo. Mm. Uh, Laurent Ngunda was uh, one of the uh, really vicious warlords in the east of Congo. And he was one of the gentlemen who um, was very pre prevalent in producing child soldiers. And as his badge shows, he's a rebel for Christ, which is uh, he's probably one of the most unchristian people you can come across. Um, the bag is also to do with um, Congo in that it's to do with exploitation. Uh, to me, a Louis Vuitton bag is a completely over-the-top mm. waste of time. But in order to own one of those, you have to be very wealthy mm. or you have a fake. Now, the, the wealth for me of the Congo is what's producing the ability to certain, for certain people in the world to have these over-the-top possessions. So, actually, the bag is um, made of it's a, a, a second-hand um, Oxfam coat, really. And if you see the lighter areas mm. on the edges, which um, on a, are on a Louis Vuitton bag, they're actually made out of pornographic magazines. And they're to do with the idea of, um, you know, what, what, what kind of things result from this exploitation. Mm. You'll see diamonds mm -hmm. around there because obviously they're removed from the Congo. You'll see the symbols on, of the Louis Vuitton have been replaced by landmines and um, the machine gun cartridges and uh, hand grenades. So I've, I've converted those symbols. And if you look inside, you're looking into uh, a mine and mm. you can see the eyes of the miners in there. So it's yeah. to do with, you know, you take everything out mm. and you give them nothing but war. Yeah, yeah. And conflict. Um, and this is just one of masses and masses of Khmer. What a fantastically interesting story. And, and thank you very much indeed for sharing this with me. Well, thank you for coming <laughs> and interviewing me. That's great. <laughs> You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105.
If you're walking anywhere near Norfolk Street over the Christmas period, it's worth taking a peek at the sculpture busily at work through the ice cube window of changing spaces as she gradually assembles a new structure set to open in January. Chloe Leeper is painstakingly creating The Glass Project Part 2 that looks at the hinterland between abstract reality and the way we see the concrete world seen perhaps through the gossamer of a kind of waking dream that breaks the rules of perception. Chloe, um, here we are in the Changing Faces studio, which is right next to the CV2 cafe. Um, I talked to you a few weeks ago um, about the amazing thing that you did in this ice cube shaped shop window, yes. but you're just building up to doing something else. What are you up to at the moment? Yeah, well, um, well following the first project, mm. Angie invited me back um, mm. to do a part two um, because the, the system worked very well and, and a lot of the public really enjoyed the fact that they got to, I had a lot of good feedback that they got to see the build. So this time, um, I've taken the opportunity to use an existing uh, piece that I made a couple of years ago in London, which was um, exploring, again, spatial perception, but this time in a much more transitory nature and whereas before I had it as a corner piece so you could only look at it this time I want I've used the whole gallery space so you walk into it so it becomes an immersive installation and um, connotations of Ariadne's web around us Definitely. Yeah. There, there is a web-like... Uh, it, it's all to do with this fractured notion of spatial perception, yeah. I think. I'm really interested in the fact that actually there are lots of systems in place to try and make space very comprehensible and very total, mm. and particularly architectural space. And I've always found that actually perception, visual perception in particular, and especially acoustic perception, because mm. a lot of this is very influenced by musical spatial mm. structuring, um, is that what happens is that you take in moment by moment, you build up a schematic in your mind, yeah. but actually it's very fractured. So this piece is full of delicate little moments, murmurings. It's mm. based on, not based on, but it takes uh, some of the kind of poetic language of Eve Lomax's mm. uh, book, uh, Sounding the Event. And she talks about the noisy multiplicity of, of, mm. of the world, like um, a sound tapestry. Are you exploiting that sort of characteristic of the mind that when it sees something, it, it can sometimes fill in the rest of the picture? It's what they call yes. closing in animation, things like yeah. that. And, and you're playing with that a little bit, are you? Definitely. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, you'll see there's, um, there's deliberately broken squares yeah. because um, a lot of this, again, because of framing and focusing on areas was to do with this notion of typical framing of spaces which we often do in rectilinear forms mm. um, so I've taken the square as a motif related to some of the uh, parts of the actual architecture mm. and kind of surface skin texture of the gallery but I like the fact of that incompleteness because of the very fact that we're so conditioned to complete things and allow things to fit into existing schematics mm. or schemas rather that I want to distort that slightly It looks like a very painstaking project because you're using <laughs> yeah. tiny almost invisible threads to suspend yeah. things um, in the air um, and where do you get that from is that fishing line or something it, it is it's mm. a really mm. basic it's not even fishing line strength <laughs> it's a really basic transparent thread um, but yes it's it's very fiddly which is not at all like me for anyone that knows me I'm very <laughs> heavy-handed um, but it was sort of necessary it was one of these things where the language had to be this kind of ephemeral, delicate, transitory, fragile, in order to get over the mm. idea anything too heavy became too much about the form mm. and this has to stay about the space rather than the objects within the space. You've got kind of um, what seems to be like dust or charcoal um, mm. onto um, white walls um, but you're playing a little bit between whether or not something is uh, a smudge or is it something more interesting yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's that's great because you have um, specific things laid into that um, what are you trying to do there exactly well in the similar way to the last piece and that's why it is a continuation of this constantly playing between 
three-dimensional real space yeah. as such yeah. and two-dimensional illusionistic space and so a lot of this smudgy language in the linear work yeah. um, I find a lot of um, uh, I find a lot of uh, what's the word it's not influence as such but I've recently seen uh, Chinese apparitional painting mm. and again that kind of that, that trying to get a metaphysical space beyond the, the silk or mm. beyond the paper it's my similar way of going in the wall and it sort of oscillates mm. between very much surface texture and then a kind of perceived depth that goes through the wall so yeah uh, people can actually watch you gradually yeah, creating yeah, this yeah. art space they, do, but they, they drop in and say things to you yeah I, I have a few sort of regular people who mm. every day will walk by yeah. and sort of thumbs up and they're yeah. people I recognise from the last That's installation like, yeah. so I started to build up some sort of weirdly I don't know visual relationships yeah. with people um, yeah. and other people will stop read the, there's a bit of blurb mm. on, the, on the window so you understand it but people do stop for quite a while and then like I found last time I wasn't really that aware because I'm quite concentrated yeah. in what I'm doing but the number of people who came to the show yeah. and said I've been watching and yeah. I've really enjoyed that it, um, mm. people must be engaging yeah. with it when is the song going to open to the public? this is going to be open on the 4th yeah. um, from 12 o'clock and the private view is that night and everybody is invited again we're being sponsored um, for our private views drinks by uh, by CB2 very kindly yeah. so there will be some nice um, alcohol and soft drinks and that will run till uh, the 12th mm. and Chloe Lee, but another really exciting one coming <laughs> up thank you very much thank you very much Bye. time to take a look at what's coming up in the city in the coming weeks. If you're listening to the rerun of the show in early January, this will be out of date. Moscow City Ballet does Swan Lake at the Corn Exchange on Friday the 3rd of January and the Nutcracker on the Saturday the 4th and Sunday the 5th at the same venue. Agatha Christie's Black Coffee opens at the Arts Theatre on January the 20th. The Arts Theatre Pantomime, Robin Hood, runs until the 12th of January, directed by Michael Fentiman. And on Monday the 23rd of December, there's a family Christmas concert at the Corn Exchange with Cambridgeshire County Council Youth Orchestra. And that's all we have time for in this edition of Arts Roundup. I hope you've enjoyed a creative hour with us on Cambridge 105 FM.
never been blue No, no, no You ain't never been blue Till you've had that mood and go That feeling goes stealing down to my shoes While I just sit here and sigh Go long blues I always get that mood in the go Since my baby said goodbye And in the evening when the lights are low I'm so lonely I could cry For there's nobody who cares about me I'm just a poor fool that's bluer than blue can be When I get that mood in the go I could lay me down and die 